Before we get stuck into it, a warning that this is a conference for adults and there is occasionally some strong language. So careful playing it around young ones. This is a Young Farmer Business Program podcast. You're listening to The Business of Farming, a series of talks from the Young Farmer Business Program, brought to you by the New South Wales Department of Primary Industries. I'm Selena Shannon, and this episode was recorded at the 2021 conference in Dubbo. Sam Trefui is a beef farmer who swears by regenerative farming and is passionate about carbon farming. He and his wife have set up a different type of cattle farm where they only own Wagyu bulls. They then team up with nearby dairy farms to breed calves using the dairy cows. The calves are grass-fed on their Tasmanian property, where they use a time control grazing system and where they've introduced multiple species in the paddocks. Why beef? I believe that Australians deserve to have a good-eating, well-priced, premium beef product that's single-source and fully transparent all the way through. In this session, Sam breaks down why he and his wife decided to run their farming business differently to others, and why he thinks it's the best method for farmers going into the future. G'day, my name's Sam Trefui, and it's, uh, it is awesome to be here, and well done to the organisers who plucked me out of my little COVID-free bubble uh, down in Tassie. Um, but I'm here to kind of tell you about the blood, sweat and tears, the stories, the journeys, the lessons, uh, and perhaps um, it might, you know, save you guys from making some of the same mistakes and hopefully in some ways perhaps potentially inspiring you to perhaps look at things a little bit differently. So to paint a few facts and figures, I thought we'd kind of just get started so you can kind of see, you know, where we sit and, and how we've built it. And I suppose the interesting thing, and one of the reasons I am here is because uh, we've built this without being handed a generational asset. Uh, we haven't been given a thing. Uh, we, we've done everything off our own back from a standing start. Sam shows us some key figures on his PowerPoint slide. I'll quickly run through them. The time from idea to now is three and a half years. The time on the farm is 22 months. In terms of head of cattle, he had 2,662 bulls. In terms of land area under management, it's 1,690 acres. They raised $1.3 million for cattle. Their revenues at $75,000. And the shareholding is 55% to them and 45% to investors. These are the kinds of facts and figures um, of kind of where we're at today. So you can all read, I hope, so I'm not going to go through every single one. Um, but I suppose that three and a half years was when we first came up with the idea. I was floating around on some kind of weird inflatable thing on our honeymoon and I was sick of corporate life and I wanted to get back to farm uh, and, and we came up with the idea. And then 22 months ago, we, we started on farm. So the 14 or so months between the idea and that, that, that farm time was massive. We had to come up with a business plan. I had to get investors on board. I had to come up with really innovative, clever ways of structuring that because I had no money. Um, I had to buy a farm. Um, and I suppose, how is it that in 22 months we've got 2,600 head that we've bred ourselves um, when we've only been there for 22 months? Biologically, that doesn't actually make a lot of sense, um, I suppose, when you look at the numbers that we've been doing. And it's purely because when I was drinking coffees in Melbourne, uh, I reduced my hours from full-time to part-time. And I was flying back and forth from Tassie, pimping out our bulls, doing some pretty cool stuff that I'll talk to you about and that's why we've gotten to that scale so quickly. Um, 
We've got a few animals out on adjustment on top of what we have under management, um, but I suppose you know, you're probably thinking that's a lot of animals for those types of acres. I've farmed myself on the mainland here for about 17 years. Um, I suppose Tassie's an incredibly productive place. Uh, we're paying between seven and $12,000 an acre, but what you pay for is what you get. Um, the operational type of thing, so there's, there's, there's three thing, those three dollar amounts there are there, split out for a reason, and we'll get into that in a second. But we've had to build structures and value, proposition for, value propositions for investors around each of those three areas. Um, revenue, 75 grand. Sounds like a lot to me, 75 grand. It's three times more than what I pay myself, uh, but we're burning through that in about three, every three or four weeks. Um, so that's why we needed that 950k to prime the pump, get us up and going out of investors, and then we're kind of just coming out of what they call, in startup uh, language, in, in Silicon Valley, they call it the valley of death. And we're just creeping out of there right now after having copped a and massive hiding. Um, so I'm going to try and not swear. I've been on farm for 18 months. I've got a, got a bit of a mouth, so I'm, just bear with me. Um, anyway, and then the shareholding, if we're going to raise all this money, we're going to have to give something up for that, and that's kind of where we sit with our shareholding. Better off to own 55% of that than 100% of nothing. So who we are. I grew up in Tassie on farm. Like a lot of Tasmanians, I, I uh, turned 18, finished school and, and got the hell out of there. And I worked on farm throughout Australia um, and overseas a bit too. And um, I suppose the unique part about my working life on farm is I love to move around. Um, a mentor once said to me, if you're uh, doing more than you're learning in your job, you need to leave. Employers would hate hearing that. <laughs> uh, but when you start a job, you're like 10% doing, 90% learning, and as long as you stay there, you do more than you learn. Um, so I jumped a lot, uh, which made uh, sometimes getting a job difficult because they could see a track record. But as a result, I stand here in front of you, and I've grown up in more southern-based systems, but I've worked in northern beef, I've worked in cotton, I've worked in crocodile, I've worked in macadamias, I've done superfine wool, lamb, broadacre cropping, uh, fodder, heaps of stuff. Um, and I urge you to perhaps think about your own careers that as you, you, you kind of go through that space, because we think in silos in every sector, but agriculture is perfect, because agriculture has made all these little silos. I'm in the beef sector, so I'm going to get a mentor, I'm going to go and ask Troy Setter at CPC or Jason Strong at MLA. Get out of the sector, go and learn something from someone else because they'll completely change the way you view your own knowledge and experiences in agriculture applying a lens from outside the sector. We're really great navel gazers in agriculture. Anyway, I digress. Um, so, uh, so that's kind of what I did, and then I, I never studied. Um, I had enough Ritalin at school to kill a small horse. Um, I've got ADHD. And, um, and, uh, I suppose I didn't want to study on drugs, and, and so I, I put it off, and, and I had some great uh, advice when I was 30. Uh, so I went and did my MBA at Bond, and I did it in 13 months, which hurt, um, but it was the best thing I ever did. Um, and it gave me opportunities in corporate, uh, which have completely helped me shape what it is that I've been able to achieve to date at 37 years of age. Um, and we're just getting started, as I said. So. That, that unlocked opportunities. I was tapped on the shoulder by the National Farmers Federation. I helped build a, an ag tech accelerator program and a venture capital fund called SproutX. Some of you may be aware of it. We invest in entrepreneurs and startups, and that was awesome, like awesome. And um, also, we ended up working for a financial services company alongside that, which I'll talk a bit about too. Um, so, and then that kind of inspired Taz Aiko. Steph, you've just seen a bit of her handiwork. She was a journalist and a producer with Channel 9 and Channel 7 for eight years. Uh, she was the bureau chief in Rockhampton for Channel 7, and she interviewed me for a story on meat, uh, funnily enough, uh, seven years ago. Um, and she ended up working for a current affair, quality show. And, um, and, and you know, we did some 
uh, you know, she did some amazing stuff in the TV world, but she's, anyone, you know, Edwina would be no uh, different, is commercial television people are incredibly hard workers, they are incredibly polished, they're incredibly competitive, and, and they love telling stories. And so, you know, what better, what better opportunity to produce a, a consumer-facing, exciting, future-focused beef business? Where we are, um, central northern Tasmania. Why? Because I picked it. Why is that important? Because I picked it. <laughs> you see, often when we're given these generational assets, it was great for great-great-grandpa who thought it was a cool idea when he came out from Europe, but it could be a poor farm, it might be farming things or only conducive to farming certain commodity groups that you don't want to farm. You know, you're kind of you're shackled. So the great thing about what I was able to do is, is I get to write my own rule book. Um, so I wanted reliable, westerly weather systems. The easterly job, I worked here for 15 years in mainland, it frightens me. Um, so I wanted reliable westerly rainfall. We're at a metre of rainfall there. Um, our neighbours grow poppies, carrots, kale, broccoli. We grow beef on the same country. Um, so that's why Tasmanian beef has a reputation, because the soils, the climate is really conducive to growing really, really great quality beef breeds. So that's why I wanted to be there. And of course, home is where the heart is, and the lifestyle down there is pretty awesome too. So what we do, um, we are a regenerative F1 Wagyu premium beef production business. Um, and I'd kind of stack the importance in that order. We are a food business. I don't charge GST, I supply fresh meat. Um, and I think that's just really interesting. I remember um, chatting with Pip Courtney years ago, and she'd interviewed this really interesting guy, as she does most weeks, um, and he said, you're either a commodity thinker or you're a value-added thinker. And I think that was a, a bit of a pivotal moment for me in my uh, late 20s to understand that, that um, I suppose, I, I don't, a commodity scare me. Um, I'm, I'm actually petrified by commodities. I hate being out of control and being told what price I'm to be paid. Um, people are very, very good at it. It's just not, it just doesn't, I can't, just doesn't work for me. Um, so I prefer to have that control, um, which is gruelling, it's tough, it's really tough at the moment, um, but everyone says that, you know, there's light at the end of the tunnel. So that's kind of what we do. How we do it, and I'm just mindful of my, my time with you because I really want to have lots of questions and stuff. So there's three things I want to talk about here, is the beef piece, like actual physical animal, the business structures that we set up to make this all happen, and then the regenerative agriculture piece, which I'm not going to kind of get into too much because each of these are really almost a session on themselves. The beef piece is an interesting one. When you look at a farm's balance sheet, the heaviest thing, if the farm owns the land, which you probably shouldn't, depending on what your accountant says, I'll let you work that out yourself, is that a farm's the heaviest thing on a balance sheet. The second heaviest thing are breeding units. Sheep, cattle, whatever your choice. So we had no money, we had to start from scratch. So startups are really, really good at raising capital. Well, sorry, I'll rephrase that. Startups are really good at not letting heavy things on their balance sheet because they've got to raise capital for that. The, the heavier and more expensive this stuff is, the more money they've got to raise. The more money they've got to raise, the more equity they've got to give up, right? So I was looking at Uber and Airbnb. I know they're cliche examples, but how, how you know, Uber's the biggest transport company in the world, don't own a car. Airbnb, accommodation, don't own a bed. How can I be one of the biggest beef producers in Tasmania, maybe Australia one day, and not own a cow? So I looked at the dairy industry. 50% of their calves, they either shoot them as soon as they're born, or they half keep them alive in, in most cases. Sometimes they are kept alive very, very well for five or six days until their hooves are hard, they get on a truck, they get their head knocked off, and they end up in dog food at best. 
Horrific. I'm very, very close to the dairy industry. I've got 12 dairy partners in our business, um, and it's something that none of them like to do. It's a really awkward part of the industry, and they're working very, very hard to get away from that because it's a bit of an animal welfare ticking time bomb. So what I did is I thought, well, hang on, you don't want your calves, but you want your cows. Opposite for me, can you use some of these high-growth Wagyu genetics? We use red Wagyu. Happy to talk a bit more about it, that later. But that gives me a faster-growing animal. I get a I get a 500 kilo dairy cross Wagyu animal to 500 kilos kill weight in about 18 months on grass. Um, that's only going to get better as we work ourselves out because we're still like in you know early stages. Um, but anyway, that meant that I could um, basically buy calves. Uh, so basically put these free bulls and free semen out to dairies, they join them, I buy those calves back at 100 kilos, I pay 500 bucks, and then we just become a fattening operation. I have to worry about calving and heifers and all that stuff, weaning, don't have to do any of that stuff. Um, so I can focus on, on producing beef and, and growing grass and storing carbon and all these other cool things. And it also meant that I didn't have to own, so if I wanted, you know, we've got 2600 head, you know, to produce that, you'd probably want 2,800 breeders in Tassie. If you're not getting kind of 98 plus percent calving percentage, you need a good long, hard look at yourself in Tassie. So that, that's kind of, I suppose, where, where things sit there. You'd need about, what, today's market, $5.6 million just to buy breeders. And all they do is walk around, eat grass all year and give you one calf. Like, what an enormous, like, capital sink for a young person. Like, it's crazy. So that's why we got away from that. So that's kind of how we, how we did that, which was kind of, kind of cool. We're certainly not the first to do it, but that was kind of what we stumbled upon, and that's the model that we built. The next piece is um, the business structure. So I suppose on that is how do we have to finance these calves? Like I didn't, have to, I didn't want to have to raise more money to buy all these calves. We've got 2,600 head at the moment. We're paying 500 bucks a head. That's $1.3 million. So I looked to Stockco. Some of you may know Stockco. They're a um, livestock financing business. They're really cool. Kiwi mob. Um, and they buy the animal and then they actually own it, sits on their balance sheet, and then at the end, when you finish your trade, um, which is, has to be 12 months, um, they, you sell the animal, um, they actually receive the cash and they keep their, their principal, what they paid for the original animal, and they charge you 15% interest at the time, uh, and then you get the rest. It's, it's pretty cool, but they, only, they wanted 12 months and 15%, like, that's drug money. Like on today's interest rates, well, even then, you know, that's insane. Um, so. I just took the model, went to a bunch of high net worth investors, which is a fancy name for rich people that I knew, and said, would you do this model, but we want 18 months, not 12 months, and I don't know, does 8% sound good to you? And they're like, 8%? Where else can I get 8% on a semi-secured asset that's actually increasing in value? Yeah, no problems. So we, we built a $1.5 million fund, like our own little car finance fund, uh, that we're paying 8% on, and the, the most important part that I want to make clear on that is, is that we're not paying interest every month or every quarter um, because I need to conserve that working capital um, that we raise because I'm trying to stay afloat, right? I've got no revenue. So at the end of the, of the animal's life, we process it. We get our two, two and a half, sometimes three grand, whatever it is for that animal. Um, and then we pay that 500 bucks back and the, you know, it's about 80 bucks or whatever it works out to be interest. So we get to pay that back once. We've got the money, you know, so that worked out really well from a cash flow point of view for us. So that's what we set up there. Um, and then the next piece is the business structure, and um, I'll touch a bit of this in one of my other slides, but I had some amazing advice from a guy, um, who I won't bother you, bore you with how I met, met him, but um, he used to build shopping centres in Eastern Europe for 15 years. 
as you do, um, from, and he's from Tassie originally too. And, and, and so I actually modelled a lot of their structures uh, and how they'd set up those deals for our little business, which is slightly similar to some of the corporate kind of farmers, I suppose, in Australia. We have an opco and a propco, operations company, um, and then you've got your property company. Investors can invest in either uh, or both. Um, and, you know, I suppose in my raising journey, which was a horrific experience, as mo- usually it is for most entrepreneurs, um, you know, investors are people, all people are different, everyone wants something different. It's hard to be everything to everyone, so, you know, ag people love what you're doing, I get it, it's amazing, you know, you know, it's exciting, I love the dairy thing, so innovative, you're young, but I'm freaked out about the meat piece. I don't understand supply chain, marketing, I just, I'm a commodity thinker, I can't get my head around it, no, I'm not going to invest. And you go to a food person, I get it, it's sexy, the story, your background, the cattle, the farm, it's beautiful, I love it, you know, it's the, they totally get the sizzle, right? But just the agricultural bit confuses me. Every time they turn on the, the bloody TV, there's someone in drought crying out because they can't run their farm or whatever's going on. And so, and so they just get freaked out from agriculture. So I, it was a really difficult kind of investor uh, value proposition. Uh, and the last part is the regenerative piece, and I can talk about this a little bit more, but you know, how do we do that? Um, we, we do time-controlled grazing. I grew up in time-controlled grazing systems. Dad did Terry McCosker's course back in the, the 90s, and I thought that was normal until I went and worked on farms, and they were set stockers, and I, I couldn't understand why they would do that. And I'm a pretty opinionated person, but I, I reckon, I mean, I haven't seen a grazing system as good as time controlled if you get it right. And yes, you have to compromise certain things. No system's perfect. I get that. Um, but it's a far cry from, from what a lot of us have grown up with. So that, that sequesters carbon. It prioritises soil and plant health and puts the animals secondary, um, which is actually, if you think about it, kind of, you know, the right way. I think. Um, the second part is multiple species. So we've got up to 20 or 30 different species in our paddocks now. Why? Mother Nature loves complexity. She loves diversity. Humans, we hate it. Think of the modern agricultural system. You take a, take a bit of country, you clear it, you kill everything, you spray it, you kill everything, you sow one species, Mother Nature tries to grow some diversity, she's growing you know, taproot, kind of big, you know, those first kind of bottom level weeds because she's trying to create some ground cover, put some taproots down, bring some nutrients up, we kill them too. You know, so, so if you think of modern agriculture, it's actually a very controlled linear method, which makes a lot of sense. We've produced an enormous amount of food, a lot of people have made a lot of money, and I would say that we're perhaps starting to see some um, environmental, planetary, agricultural and human health effects from those systems and that noise is only going to get louder and louder and louder whether or not you like it or not. Um, so that's going to be very, very interesting to see in, in our time and our careers. Um, I digress. So multiple species, cattle love it. I mean, if you had to eat the one thing every day for the rest of your life like we expect our animals to do, you'd put your hoof up and you'd say, take me to the abattoir now. You know? So, you know, I think like the cattle love it. You've got, we've got different types of brassicas, we've got different types of legumes, cereals, we've got kinopods, we've got all kinds of stuff. So they love it, but it's really for sequestering carbon and creating a rich, diverse set of microbiology in our soil. That's why we do it, and that's why Mother Nature does it, and it works really, really well. If you've got dock and scotch thistle where I do, she's obviously trying to grow taproots, so give us some taproots that cattle actually eat, and what happens? They grow like buggery. So 
we need to start perhaps looking at the signs perhaps instead of just kill it, you know, kill it. That's not supposed to be there, kill it. Um, that's kind of interesting. Last piece um, is I've stopped, Roundup's not allowed past our front gate anymore. We don't use any chemicals on our paddocks. Um, we do do a little bit of selective spraying and noxious weeds and stuff like that. Uh, and we're less and less using synthetic fert. Uh, we use a little bit of MAP, uh, sorry, DAP this year. We've used a little bit of single super just because the place has been really, really deficient in P. Um, but we're kind of moving to a completely different system, a biological system, um, not, a, not, a, not a chemistry kind of based system. So that's how we do that. Right, why we do it. I'm getting to the end, so uh, bear with me. Oh, this is another hour. Uh, why we do it. Why we do beef, because I like beef. And we're going to look at stacking other enterprises on our farm soon. So if any of you are, are looking for land, uh, are looking for a collaborative partner, and maybe your investor would love to hear from you, we're looking at stacking other enterprises on our existing farm uh, and doing some pretty cool stuff around that with marketing and, and other bits. Why beef? I believe that Australians deserve to have a uh, good-eating, well-priced, premium beef product that's single-source and, and fully trans transparent all the way through. And you can see that on our, our um, Instagram and Facebook and stuff like that. Because most beef that we buy, we have no idea where it comes from. And it's generally owned by a processor, which is obviously an aggregation. Cape Grim is a great example. People still think that it comes from one location in little old Tasmania. Well, there's not many places you can run one location in Tasmania where you can run 20,000 head of cattle. Uh, and that's killing 20,000 a year. Um, so yeah, it's a massive aggregation. And, and so we wanted to offer that to consumers just because we know that that's what they want to see. Um, so why the carbon piece? I did a TED talk on this about 12 months, uh, 15 months ago. If you're interested in this stuff, check it out. And I'm not the only person to talk about it. We need to reverse climate change. We need to reverse it. And I'm terrified that all the talk is about reducing emissions. If you're in a sinking ship, would you just focus on reducing the size of the hole in the side of the boat? Or would you pump the water out? You pump the water out. And no one's pumping the water out. No one's talking about pumping the water out. We're just talking about reducing the size of the hole. If we could pump the water out at the rate that the water was coming in, well, that's cool, because we're technically, you know, we're plateaued. And you, you get what I'm saying. So there are lots of ways that we can do this. But in agriculture, it's through regenerative practices. It's through focusing on soil biology, not just soil chemistry, like the conventional system does. It's through sequestering that carbon. It's through a whole bunch of amazing tools that there's so much passion and information about online, it'll boggle you senseless. And so if we can start sequestering and storing more carbon in our soils and methane and emissions that our cattle emit, we will be net positive in our emissions. And that's without seaweed and all the other cool stuff that we're going to start seeing out in the next few years. Um, so we need to reverse climate change. So that's one of the biggest reasons and my why, why I'm doing this. And it sounds kind of sexy. You've seen a heap of sizzle and you've heard a little bit about the sausage. But the reality, um, <laughs> the reality of it is, right, is we're also building data behind this. This is not some flimsical brain fart that I've raised a whole heap of some poor bastard's money on. I've gone down to Tassium, living my dreams, eating cheese and wine and all that kind of stuff. Um, we're building data around everything. We... Um, we uh, We've got blood tests of animals that were on the farm before we bought it. We've got blood tests every six months of animals that have been in our regenerative system. We've got plant tissue tests. We've got one metre deep soil carbon tests. We've got feed tests. I've got obviously normal soil tests, agricultural soil tests. Um, we've got um, biodiversity um, baselining that's kind of been going on. We're doing water infiltration. We're doing penetrometer tests. I'm building as much data as possible. And I know Chris Riddle um, was uh, talking earlier on the thing. I remember he said to me in one of his presentations years ago that data is the new oil. We have to mine it and refine it. Um, and and I, I've got a lot of ambitions, if you haven't already worked that out. And um, I suppose 
how can I raise a billion dollars in five years and do this on enormous scale um, without data? Now, the whole regenerative space, it's really cool, feels good, but it's all anecdotal evidence. Oh, it's a few you know, photos of down the fence line and like, look at our soil, look at all the worms, and, and it's all great, but, but an investor's not going to invest in that. They want data, so that's what I'm doing. Environmental data, production data, and commercial data. So that's, that's one of the other main reasons kind of why we do it. And lastly on that, before we move to a, a couple of little uh, slides and then some questions, is I believe, um, and I kind of touched on it earlier, that like this is my belief, and, and you may not choose, you may, not, you may think this is batshit crazy, um, or you may think, oh, that's interesting. Go ask your grandparents how many people they knew at your age that had cancer. Go and ask them how many people they knew at their age that had diabetes, that had all the issues that we're having. Are we living longer or are we dying slower? We have an enormous human health crisis on our hands, and we just take it for granted. I've got two friends that got kids with cancer. Like, what the? Like, what the? Like, it's crazy. Like, it's just, it, and we just like, oh, yeah, you know, shit luck. Or, <laughs> no, one's, no one's talking about this. And if you look at the developed world, the only thing that we've all got in common, and when, if you look at the timelines, is our food system. It's just crazy. It's just, it's just crazy. So, I mean, of course, you know, you scratch this up and you keep on going. And, yeah, okay, there's some real crazy people in this space. But there's actually some amazing, scaled-up, smart, sophisticated people doing some incredible work in this space. And that gives you hope, right? And so I believe, um, and that's why my beliefs around... Uh, less use of chemicals, farming more in harmony with Mother Nature and utilising her to run natural ecosystems on your property, um, I believe we will start to perhaps right some wrongs and change some things. And, and as I said, you're only going to hear more and more of this as, as this kind of evolves. So that's kind of my, my belief. And I, the more I research it, and you can see I'm very passionate about it, I, I, can't, see, I can't see a lot of, um, you know, I suppose, pushback. The only people that are pushing back or playing funny buggers on that have got enormous billion-dollar invested interests in the space. So interesting times. Takeaways. Whiz through this. Um, in your career, if you're raising money, uh, if you've got a vision, um, be prepared to kiss a lot of frogs. Sounds really obvious, um, but you know, I reckon I had 60-odd meetings to raise capital uh, for Tazagco. Um, but, and, and this is the thing, don't just, you know, what's the definition of insanity? Everyone knows that. So don't, don't just keep on pitching the same thing. What we used to do is basically, um, Someone would say, oh, look, what about this? What about that? I don't like it. I don't want to invest. But if you thought about this, so I'd fix it. I'd, I'd quash their risk and I'd go pitch it again. So you just keep, keep going. You've heard a bit about Regen Ag. Uh, your mind is all that stands between you and your goals. And I'm not just talking about attitude. I'm also kind of talking about, um, you know, knowledge. So I've been able to do what I've done because of the knowledge and my connections. And I urge you, and this is an amazing thing, your parents, my parents, I, at your age, never had this, um, and, and you'll meet connections and people that you'll run into and or watch as they grow in their own careers, and you'll use and grow from each other, in this, and that's, that's the awesome thing about these things, right? So that comes with knowledge and experience. Creation and grind are the two things that you're going to need to unlock your true value. I don't, if you're a stock agent, if you're an agronomist, if you're running to run a multi-billion dollar food, agri-food agri production fund, um, you've, we've got to be creative. We're in a mature sector. Mature sectors get complacent. You need to be innovative and creative and look at things from a different angle, which is what I've committed myself to doing. And I do that through looking at it through the eyes of people not in agriculture. Lastly, sorry, I'm nearly done. Connect with yourself. This might sound a bit woohoo, 
investors and people and, and big bosses, they've gotten there for a reason and they're generally pretty good at reading people and they've got a level of intuition, I find. And if you're trying to be something that you're not to prove something to your mum, your dad, your girlfriend, your boyfriend, your husband or whatever it is, is, is people pick up on that. So you need to connect with yourself. And I noticed the age group thing. I'll just say, slight digression, your 20s, most people in their 30s will tell you your 20s are crap. Like it's great because you're learning and stuff, but you just, you don't know who you are, what you want to do, where you want to be, you're confused, should I go here, should I get a job there, should I go out with that person there, should I study, should I travel? You know, like it's, it's a really messy time, but it's really important that you explore and push and, and just change and go and, and run with it because by the time you're 30, and I know that's a generalisation, you generally start to go, okay, I think I know who I am, what I want to do, where I want to be. You, you kind of find, your, you find your, your path a bit. Uh, and that's just about connecting with yourself and I think that's really, really important. A bit woohoo uh, for some of you, but, but it's, it's really important um, and people see straight through it. Mentors, touched on that, you know what I'm going to say, but as I said, try and find people that are going to provide a different point of view. If you're in the beef industry, don't go and ask Troy Setter or Jason Strong to be your mentor with all due respect to those guys. Uh, as lovely as they are um, and as important as they are, and they will provide you with some amazing feedback, go and ask Peter Boucher, who runs nine premium butcher stores in Melbourne, about beef. He will teach you something that someone in the industry won't, and, and that perspective will be invaluable for you as you grow your career, or, uh, and there are obviously a, a, an upteen amount of examples. Last point, um, need a drink, tracking well. Um, envisage your career with the end goal in mind, and then build your knowledge and experience around it. Sounds really like, but you know, I've crossed out plan there because when we plan, we have expectations which are, unf are unfair, I think. I don't have really any expectations. I try not to of myself or others. And, and, it, and, it, and it leads to be, it, you create issues, right? So just a very quick example. Um, I do want to live a life of abundance. I do want to have options. I do want to have lots of love and great people and mentors and good businesses and, and great great young people that are trying to innovate and do stuff you know, with me and around me, I'm excited about that. But I, I also want to have some coin, right? Like, I'm not going to lie. Like, I am looking forward one day to hopefully making some good cash. So when I was in my 20s, I would read the BRW hottest, you know, not the triple J, um, the richest list, you know, uh, for America, Australia, I didn't care. And I'm not interested in Bill Gates and Mr. Ikea because they're these outliers, right? They're tech, tech people, like, they're doing their thing. If you look at the bulk of, of people on the rich lists, what do they do? Like, what's the pattern? And most of them work in finance. Funny that. Someone who's wealthy knows how money works. So I thought, well, I want to work in finance one day. So as it ended up, I put that out there, um, and, and I knew that that was going to be a part of my journey, but I'm not an accountant. I'm not, not that kind of way inclined. Um, and I ended up heading up Agri for, for the biggest financial services company to Agri. Um, they're called Findex or Crow Horse. They used to be. There's 80-odd staff here in Dubbo. Um, and I loved that time, and it taught me a lot about money and capital markets and people and all that stuff and I'm just using that as an example because just to my last point is people in their careers they don't think about this stuff and they're not perhaps strategic with what their path is and and they kind of do this because it makes sense they do that and they do this and they do that they might have kids which means they've got to change their lifestyle here and then all of a sudden they're 45 50 and they got there and they go how the hell did this happen I didn't think I wanted to be here right and and you know that's fine, but I suppose what I'm saying is there's an opportunity for you to build knowledge and experience on your journey now to, to, to give yourself the tools that you're going to probably need in that time. Um, and on my last point on that is, you know, I did things in my 20s when I was in Melbourne that I was like, this is a total waste of time. I'm 30 bucks, I've got a tight top on, walking around with Jack Daniels and a few chicks around a bar selling shots of Jack Daniels in a bar. Like, this is dead money, man. Like, 
I've hit ground rock bottom, you know. It's like one of those New York movies where the actors can't act and they get, you know, they're pretty and they get a job doing that shit. And so I was like, this is a disaster. But now I look at my life and we're doing this amazing thing. I'm chatting with butchers about doing in-store activation, how to sell, how to build brands, how to get other people, you know, to, to represent our brand with those people. And I wouldn't know how to do that had I not walked around selling Jack Daniels shots when I was 21 for 25 bucks an hour, right, um, in Melbourne. So it's just funny how it all happens. Good luck and let's do some questions. Edwina Bartholomew of Sunrise fame is the conference host. Edwina joins Sam Trefui on stage. The young farmers in the audience are asking questions through an app about Sam's farming journey. Some amazing questions coming through, so we'll try and fire through as many as we can. Um, the first one that came from a few of you was, how did you get investors on board? And you touched on that, but did the data help convince people of, of what you were doing? Um, yeah, so I, I mean, I set up a pitch deck. Um, you can go to Google, I've got a great pitch deck on Google Slides and it will force you to answer questions for the pitch deck that investors are going to want to know. Um, you know, there's some, some great books, um, The Lean Startup, go read it. It's one of the most amazing startup books that is good for any industry. Obama used it to win one of his elections. It's an amazing book. Um, it works on the idea that the path to entrepreneurship is actually a very well-worn path. Um, so check that out and that'll help. That'll answer a lot of your questions in that regard. But you've just got to build that value proposition, knock on doors and start asking. It's amazing when you start asking um, what, what you find. I sat on a guy um, from Launceston to Sydney tomorrow, uh, yesterday. Um, he just bought this incredible winery in Tassie somewhere. He's got a fair bit of money and I told him what I'm up to. He's like, mate, if you ever you know, want some coin, let us know. It sounds like an amazing project. I mean, you know, you've just got to get out there and get talking, but I suppose you've just got to be mindful that there's a value proposition and that there's this, as much as the sizzle's sexy, you've got to have that sausage and you've got to have those answers. Do you have to have a bit of sizzle too, though? Does it help to have, you know, you've got a great video, you've got a great Instagram account, you've got a great website that really explains your story. And I guess that's some of the, the benefit of, of being young is you're kind of savvy in all those skills already to sell your business. Yeah, I mean, we had to create... Um, obviously raise money before all that right so um, we just had to do that on on a pitch deck and and you know sell the sizzle where the problem was is you, you go you know like I mentioned you go into farmery kind of wealthy agriculturalists that might invest in you um, and they they kind of oh yeah that sizzle marketing stuff like you know you know you know how farm, cynical farmers can be about that stuff and I get it right but the reality is is marketing makes the world go around so if they like whether they like it or believe in it it's the reality is is you know that's their sexy stuff sells so it was just about finding you know someone who got that Okay, I get that, but, but how are you going to make me money? Um, and how are you going to make money and how are you going to stay afloat? Let's drill down into the data. What data have you found in your animal blood tests over those years? Um, I suppose, to be upfront, we've only been there for 22 months, so it's, it's really early days. Um, we have seen, understandably, a shift in, in trace elements in, in their bloods, as an example, to answer your question directly. We've seen a, a slight shift in, in, in trace elements that are available, understandably, when you have a diverse diet. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's pretty basic, right? So it's kind of, yeah, exactly. Same with humans. It's like if we just ate bread all day versus a bit of bread and meat or a bit of salad, you know. So I suppose that, that's what's starting to kind of come through on that front. Um, but what I'm really excited about is as we, as the soil changes from a chemical, it used to have 300 units of N put on it every summer and every autumn to put it into perspective. Like it, plays, it used to get pushed. And so it's been a chemical-based kind of chemistry not chemi a chemistry-based system, right? We're moving to a biological one. That's the main difference between conventional and regenerative. And so that takes a two or three year kind of process. So what I'm excited is to see what nutrients and trace elements are unlocked in time as we increase our microbiology, which we're tracking also through data tests. You can do microbiological soil tests to see what your fungi and bacteria is like. One person's asked, is there a particular program you guys are using to store and then 
analyse that data and maybe compare with other people? Google Drive. A Google Drive. <laughs> no, it's a bit of a bloody mess. And we've actually been tapped on the shoulder by... It's amazing once you do this stuff, who, who fronts up to your doorstep, you know? And we've had UTAS... Um, our, sorry, TAS Institute of Agriculture, which is a collaboration between the state government and university, come to us. And they're doing a, a project on tracking the, exactly what we're doing. I couldn't believe it when he said, I'm like, have you been watching me? But they're building PhDs around tracking environmental production and commercial-based outcomes on regenerative systems. So we're going to hand over all our data and let a whole bunch of smart nerds kind of pull that into some sort of system that you know, makes a bit more sense. I imagine this is a question that lots of people have. What's the first step? for someone trying to move from a, a long-established beef business to a more regenerative one? Well, what was the first thing you did? I mean, I'm a kind of all-in kind of guy, if you didn't really realise that already. So, um, and I we kind of... We did get that vibe. Yeah, yeah. And I, I suppose also with our farm, I did the, you know, Charlie Arnott, um, you know, uh, uh, who's a regenerative guru. Um, he... Uh, he'll tell you not to pull the carpet from underneath your farm and to transition slowly. And I'm like... Yeah, I'm going to quit smoking. I'm just going to cold turkey, man. And of course, I did that, and the farm just like neighbours were like calling up, going, "Is everything all right?" Like, you know, well, they were the nice ones. Um, so yeah. Um, so my the way I answer that is carve out a paddock, do, do a like for like, do your own test. I mean, this is the great thing about regenerative, right? It's inclusive. Organics buggered it up because they said you can't do this, you can't do that, you can't do that. Everyone's like, well, what do I do then? You know. So regenerative is all about you can do this, you can do that, try that. It's a really exciting space. So carve out one paddock that's next to another paddock and spend two or three years introducing multiple species or if you're doing uh, annual cropping, do some cover crops and, and muck around with it. There's so much information and amazing people that are doing this on scale and, and just trial it. And, and, and if two or three years in, you start to think, well, actually, this is pretty good. We're, we've you know, chopped our inputs by 70%. We're maintaining productivity and we're starting to see some cool changes. Go for it, you know, so just trial and test and muck around. Here's an easy one. What's your dog's name? Oxley. Oxley. Oh, actually, okay. oh, I missed the last slide. I, there was a, anyway, it's all good. Well, we can come back to that. Funny story. We can come back to that. Um, you, you spoke a lot about... Oh, sorry, the dog on there was actually Trek. Sorry. <laughs> Carbon Ox, farmers. Oxley's my favourite. <laughs> Carbon farmers. Yes. How does that actually work for you? How are you measuring it? Um, again, what were the first steps on that path? So when I was in Melbourne, I was looking around for carbon people. If I'm going to be uh, in front of customers at a Harris Farm Markets, which we're not there yet, but and I've got to defend our carbon claims, I want the most rigorous carbon testing methodology in the world. Uh, and that is actually an Australian methodology developed by AgriProve, a guy called Matthew Warnkin. Uh, and it's actually been approved at the UN Paris Agreement and by the federal government, which means all of our carbon credits can go towards Australia reducing their emissions by 2030. Um, the reason I mention that is because is it is the most rigorous. There are other carbon projects around there that go down 10 or 15 centimetres. Carbon's easy to store at that level and it's easy to take away in a drought and things like that. So I wanted the most rigorous testing methodology that we could find. And also I quite liked, um, and I'm, I'm not, I don't work for AgriProve, but they are the most corporate and sophisticated. Um, when I met him, I'm like, this guy knows his stuff. Um, and, and you find a lot of people in the regenerative space, they're kind of perhaps not so corporate and not so professional and very much well-intentioned, but I, from a from a sophistication and sustainability point of view, I, I have my, my concerns. Just last point on that is also we have a... Rig <laughs> Because the carbon market and the regenerative market, the ag tech market, I seem to be attracted to these things, are an immature market. It means that my carbon credits are worth as much as a carbon credit at 10 or 15 centimetres. But in 10 or 15 years, when there's more sophistication and maturity in the market, you know, when Unilever or, or, or Apple go to buy carbon credits, they're like, hang on, perhaps there's, some, there's carbon credits, and there's carbon credits. And, and I believe that the more rigorous, deeper, you know, international kind of 
you know, protocols will produce a better quality, higher value carbon credit. Um, at the moment, it's a bit like Wagyu. If anyone knew 20, 30 years, if it had a W in front of it and it was Wagyu, it'd sell, 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 sell. Now there's some maturity in the sector. Anyone that knows Wagyu's know the only people making money are the people that focused on their data, focused on their genetics and did it properly from the start. They're being rewarded now with 80, 70, $60,000 bulls. And the guys that bred anything to bred anything are gone. And this is going to be the same for carbon. Just focus on who you do your project with and, and what that's going to mean for you in the future over and out. So when you picked your property, Jim asked, did you pick land that had used chemicals previously for, for a reason, so you could turn it around, or did you pick virgin country? Does it make any difference? Sounds like it was pretty run down when you started. Oh, no, it wasn't. I mean, it looked amazing, and it is an amazing farm, and, and we're very lucky, but I didn't have the benefit of, I mean, you know, you know it's not like buying a house in Dubbo or, you know, Wallara or wherever you want to live, there's lots of options, right? There's lots of houses on the market. When I mean, you're looking for a farm in a specific area and a specific budget that's going to do a specific thing, you know, there might only be one or two on the market at most, right? And we had to move. So, um, no, it's a great farm. It is in good condition. It's been very well run at a, in a conventional way, like it was really well run. We're changing those systems up. Um, but, yeah, no, it was, it was, you know, Dad's always said to me, and I'd encourage you to think about this too, with any property you buy, what are the things that you can't change and what are the things that you can change? So all the things that you can't change were right. Location, water, rainfall, soil types, temperature, you know, all that stuff. All the things that you can change, which were buggered, fences, water systems, tree lines, blah, blah, blah. So that's kind of the way I thought about it. You mentioned adding or wanting to add multi-species um, stacking your property. So what are, you, what are you looking at for the future? What's the uh, next step? Um, my wife's going to kill me if for you saying can this because say. it's kind of not public knowledge yet. But, uh, anyway. She's not here. Anyway. Um, no, well, we're kind of carrying on about diversity, right? Um, but we're in Mother Nature. Like, I get the diversity of pastures. We're doing that. That's, I, now I have my head around that and I can see the results. I can't understand why I ever thought growing one or two things in the same patch of dirt ever made sense. Um, but now we've just got cattle. I'm like, well, Mother Nature doesn't just have cattle. She has lots of different things. So, and then you start looking at some operations that introduce chickens and other things into their operations on scale. You can run a thousand laying eggs, uh, a thousand egg layers, not have to deal with a processor and not have to reduce your cattle numbers. And they, they feed off the waste and resources that the cattle leave behind, fertilise your paddock. You know what I mean? So you start seeing this permaculture eco ecological type kind of services and that's what I'm kind of looking at. I'm not going to be out picking out eggs but we might be looking for someone who's got a passion. I'll set up a share farming deal. We'll invest in, in half the sheds, half the feed. They buy the chickens, they invest in the rest. They do all the work. We split the profit and um, go from there. It's worked exceptionally well in the dairy industry um, and I don't know why other industries don't do it more often. The dairy industry, I mean I know they get a monthly paycheck for nine or ten months of the year but they, they bring in young people really, really well because of their business model and the way they think. And I think that there's no excuse why we can't do that in other sectors. There are a few farmers out there who wanted to peg something at the stage when you said you have a metre of rainfall a year. So what you're doing where you are, can it work elsewhere in more arid zones, particularly the multi-species cropping that you're Absolutely, using Absolutely, yeah. I mean, one of the best broad-scale kind of regenerative guys that I know is in 400 mil rainfall, which is, I think, less than Dubbo, right? Um, uh, I think, um, but um, he's in northern Victoria. Uh, he runs a few cattle, but he's, he's all broadacre cropping. Um, he runs an amazing regenerative farm, running you know, annuals and, and all that stuff. So, so absolutely, and you've only got to chat with some of the graduates out of the RCS programs over the years. I mean, you know, regenerative grazing, introducing other species, it's, it's absolutely doable. It's got nothing to do with my rainfall. In actual fact, I'd argue that my rainfall in some ways makes it sometimes a little bit harder um, in some ways. Final question, because we've run out of time with Sam, although Sam will be hanging around all day, so if you've got other questions, please approach him at lunch with the Jack Daniels Sam and he'll answer them. Um, biggest Daniels. obstacle you overcame in your business, or do you feel like it's perhaps still to come? 
Um, I hope it's not to come because there's been some shockers. Um, two, two things, um, well, three things very quickly. Um, raising the capital, just soul crushing. Just talk about digging deep, like far out. Like that was intense. And I had a time clock because we'd put a deposit on a property, you know, like that was insane. Um, second thing was this meat side. So I can't, I can't begin to tell you how easy it would be to ring JBS and say, send to B doubles cock, I'm ready to go. Like, you know, that is so easy. Like this meat stuff, like dealing with guys with stand around, oh, don't know, uh, it's just, that's a real, really big part of our, you know, anyway, it's, that's tough. As you can tell, I'm really raw, I'm going through it right now. And just lastly, um, family. You know, I've got two little ones. Um, um, entrepreneurs, I'm not, I have learned, I'm not a particularly empathetic person. I had to Google it about six months ago because dad said something. Um, and, and I'm like, you're really like, oh, like, you know, maybe I should be, you know, it's like, I don't know. And, and, that's, and so entrepreneurs sometimes aren't, and that's caused some major issues just in our own little family unit, like COVID, we're in Tassie, our grandparents are on the main, like their grandparents are on the mainland. We've had no family support. We've got this business. I've had two weekends off since Christmas last year. Um, you know, I mean, I'm feeding calves all weekend. I mean, I, I'm, I'm, in the, I'm in the trenches, you know. Um, and so my, there is no family life balance and, and that's what you sign up for, but I've got to work much harder on making that work because there's some, some, you know, there's some things that we need to kind of get right there and it's not the kid's fault and it's just entrepreneur life, um, but that's what you sign up for. So that's something I've got to work on. And I have an amazing life coach, have had for seven years, best thing I ever did, someone in your corner to help kind of keep me on, on, on the straight and narrow and she's been amazing too, so. One final question on that actually, you mentioned you'd worked in macadamia farming, crocodile farming. Does it help to have a mentor who's actually outside of your exact industry so that you can build off their knowledge? Absolutely, yeah. I mean, my life coach lives in the hills of Sydney. She doesn't know anything about farming. Brilliant, love it. Um, yeah, absolutely. I mean, you know, the crocodile guys could learn so much from the sheep and beef industry. Like I'm take, I reckon 20% drop, 20% increase in, in revenue in two years from, you know, that's my back of the envelope, like just, like guys, wake up, you know. Cotton industry is amazing, they're BMP, they're best manager practice manager. So there's a lot that we can kind of learn and, and that's why I said with the mentors, just go wide, think outside the square. Um, because what they'll do, as my last point on this is, they'll provide you some suggestions that, that I mean, put it this way, taxi drivers didn't, didn't create Uber. You know, no one, no one dis not many people disrupt their own industry, right? It's usually often we're seeing someone come from a fresh perspective and, and do that. So working with someone outside the sector who has some relationship in the sector um, pro will provide you with some advice from their perspective. But of course, you'll then, with your personal experience and knowledge, look at what they said with your lens over what you know, and that's where our harm moments can come. Um, and that's where you need to connect with yourself and, and, and just kind of be really clear with, with those things. But that's why I would say the importance of having mentors, you know, outside of um, your industry, you know, as much as ones inside are, are important, but don't get fixated in the echo chamber, you know, orgy of, of your specific vertical in, 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 in ag. All right, Sam, thank you so much for sharing your expertise with us today. A round of applause for Sam Kithui. All Thank the way you. from Tassie. It wasn't too hard to leave and join us on no, the mainland, no, was it? No, was it? All right. it was all right. The face mask was a bit tough. But, yeah. <laughs> we really appreciate your time. Thank you so Thanks, much. Thanks, guys. That was Sam Trefui speaking at the 2021 Young Farmer Business Program Conference in Dubbo.
Want to know more about what it takes to create a successful primary production business? Check out the rest of our talks on The Business of Farming. Find it on your podcast app or online. In our next episode, three non-succession farmers talk about how they set up their farming businesses from scratch. They take us through the ups and downs of their journeys and offer some helpful advice to future farmers. I was always jealous of mates that had, you know, generational farms. I always thought they were getting a pretty good, you know, kickstart along. I then subsequently found out that they were pretty jealous of me not having that. So, I mean, it's probably a slower process. Like you, you don't have that, you know, instant equity, or you don't have that access to machinery and and, and that experience as well um, on the one farm. But on the flip side too, you get to create what you want. Where we wanted to go is I'm the dictator of how that happens. It's only kind of you know me and the team.